0: Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to the sixth annual Harrisburg Book Festival, proudly brought to you by the Midtown Scholar Bookstore. My name is Alex Brubaker. I am the director here at the Book Festival. We're delighted to welcome you to Harrisburg for this year's festival as we celebrate literature with two of our favorite new novelists, Crystal Hana Kim and Lucy Tan, as well as thousands of our favorite readers across the four days of the festival. We hope you're having a great time, enjoying the bookstore, interacting with the authors, and hopefully coming away with more than a few signed books. Here at The Scholar, we believe in literature's ability to educate and transform our communities and our culture. Our mission is to bring together our community and our shared love for literature and connect and engage with each other over these books. We couldn't do it without our readers, so thank you once again for coming out. At this time, I'd like to welcome to the stage one of our enthusiastic booksellers, Emily Kramer, who will be introducing the authors.
1: Introduce two such talented, inspiring writers. I want to thank Crystal Hanakim and Lucy Tan for being here today. I know I can speak for everyone when I say we are thrilled to have both of them at The Scholar with us. Crystal Hanakim earned her MFA in creative writing from Columbia University and an MS in education from Hunter College. She received the Penn America's Short Story Prize for Emerging Writers, and she's received fellowships and support from the Breadloaf Writers Conference, the Gentile Foundation, and the Fine Arts Work Center in Provincetown. Currently, she is the Director of Writing Instruction for Leadership Enterprise for a Diverse America, and she's a contributing editor at Apogee Journal. Told from multiple perspectives across a span of two decades, Crystal Hanakim's novel, If You Leave Me, depicts a heart-wrenching, tragic love story that reaches deep into the lives of every character in ways not every one of them even fully understands. This is a kind of love that defines family, home, and identity. And her telling of that love is fluid, gripping, and incredibly moving. Lucy Tan earned her MFA from University of Wisconsin-Madison. Her work has appeared in Asia Literary Review and Plowshares, where she was the winner of the 2015 Emerging Writers' Contest. Tan grew up in New Jersey and has spent most of her adult life in New York and Shanghai. Set in Shanghai, Lucy Tan's novel, What We Were Promised, tells a story of another kind of love, one of time and commitment, of self-discovery, friendship, and a promise between families. This is a kind of love that envelops. It will pull you in, just as it does the characters. Lucy Tan's portrayal of this love is intimate, engrossing, and utterly beautiful. Both If You Leave Me and What We Were Promised are written in ways that are somehow both delicate and forceful. They are portraits of women, mothers, daughters, brothers, sons, husbands and wives. They are stories that call our attention to identity and that beg questions about home, country, and love. And now I'll hand it over to Crystal Hanakim and Lucy Tan. Thank you so much.
2: Hi, everybody. How are you doing? Thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Alex and Emily, for that lovely introduction. You know, Lucy and I are actually friends, so we're really excited to be here together. And we were just talking about how it's so nice to have the support of a bookstore like Midtown Scholar when you're a debut writer, because, you know, you want to reach as wide an audience as possible. So I really appreciate you all coming out. I'm going to be reading from If You Leave Me, This is a novel about five characters that are growing up during and after the Korean War. And the novel begins with Hemi, who is a 16 year old refugee who, you know, she's really willful and independent and smart and she desires a college education. But then the war breaks out and she is responsible for her younger brother who's ill and her widowed mother. So she's living under the dress of poverty and hunger and this devastating civil war, so her options are really limited. And her, her voice starts the, the novel. There are actually five different perspectives, so there are two young men who are kind of vying for her attention. They're refugees in the same refugee camp. There's Chisu, and then there's Kyungwon. Kyungwan is her childhood best friend. They're from the same rural province and they both desire an education. And then she his older wealthier cousin. And then as the novel progresses, you also get to hear from her younger brother's perspective and later her, her daughter. So I'm going to be reading from the beginning, which is Hemi, the young, the young 16-year-old refugee's perspective. It's 1951. Can you hear me all right? Kyungwon and I met where the farm fields ended and our refugee village began. I waited until my little brother was asleep, until I could count seven seconds between his uneasy inhales. I listened as Hyungi's breath struggled through the thick scum in his lungs. If he coughed, I'd stay and take care of him. On those nights, I imagined Kyung Won waiting for me by the lamppost with cigarette butts scattered in a halo around his feet. Everyone in our village whispered what they wanted to believe. The war would end and we would return to our real home soon. Mother and the other aunties chattered in the market. They had survived 35 years of Japanese rule and the Second World War. They had withstood the division of our Korea by foreign men. What was a little fighting among our own compared to past misfortune? We can stitch ourselves back together, mother said. I believed her. When Hyunggi's breathing was steady and slow, I slipped out through the kitchen entrance and went in search of Kyungwon. He and I were celebrating We celebrated every night. A year ago, when the 625 war between the North and South began, everyone in my country fled, propelled by confusion and news in the form of unexpected sounds. Bullets, airplanes, the cries of the dying. The mothers, daughters, elders, and children of my hometown stampeded South, hitching ourselves onto trains, scrabbling up mountains, wading through paddies and treading rivers. Mother, Hyeonggi, and I wore white and carried loads on our backs and on our heads. We walked until we reached the southeasternmost tip of our peninsula, where shelters gathered around markets and landmarks to form crude villages. All along the coast, people I knew from childhood lived crammed up against strangers. Most Settled in the center of Busan, where houses and churches and schools and salvage structures packed the streets. Refugees thronged together as tight as bean sprouts, as if closeness and the East Sea equaled protection. Mother separated us from the others, planting us farther out in the fields, away from the ocean and its currents. She said it was foolish to live so close together. They'll be killed clean in one day if the Reds come, swept into the sea like a pile of dead fish. Mother often spoke of luck and what happened in its absence. We were lucky to have been among the first wave of refugees. We were lucky her great uncle had died soon after our arrival, so we could claim his straw roofed home as our own. It was small and time-worn, but less fortunate families sheltered beneath scraps of steel. We were lucky the others, displaced and adrift, had not dared to crowd us out, and lucky to have found this place where life persisted, where news of fighting arrived on leaflets but didn't yet invade our days. I felt lucky for nothing except my nightly distractions, for Kyung whom I had known since childhood, and his desire to erase my fears and our secret hours together. I arrived through the fields to find kyung waiting. He blew a stream of smoke in my direction and the clouds curled toward me, hazy and warm. I breathed in their bitter scent. What took so long, he asked. kyung sick again. I grabbed the cigarette from his lips. It took him a while to fall asleep. kyung nodded at the hanbok I wore. You still wanna go? Would I chance coming out here for no reason? I blew a smoke ring in the dim glow of the lamppost. His gaze lingered on my long wraparound skirt and short jacket top. I shrugged. I don't wanna wear the men's pants anymore. We'll be careful. I don't know. Kyungwon stared at the road connecting our market to the other makeshift villages. What if someone catches us? No one will hear us if we're quiet. I started toward his bicycle, partially hidden behind the thick barley. Let's go. We'll head east, he said, catching up to me. Found some extra money this time. Oh, can we buy food? I'm so hungry, I sucked on one of Hyongi's tree roots today. Kyungwen held the bicycle steady as I scooted onto the handlebars, we'll see. I didn't care where we went, if we only cycled o- around in the open air, but Kyungwan liked to hunt for the hideaway bars rumored about among the men. These establishments moved from alley to alley, avoiding detection. Even when we found one, they rarely allowed two 16 year olds like us in. So we'd beg drunkards and homebrewers to pity us a bowlful of makali. We'd drink in fields and forests and behind buildings. On lucky nights, we'd find a, par- a bar and pretend we were wounded orphans. As the dirt road raced toward us, I closed my eyes and listened to Kyungwan's steady breathing. I've got you, he whispered whenever he felt me tense. But when we were drunk and cycling back, I'd loosen and stare at the black sky, my hair whipping into his face, and he'd tell me to straighten up, that we'd fall into a ditch one day. In the next village, everything looked the same as in our own, mud and grass built quarters, an open road where a market assembled every morning Scrap metal shelters scrounged together from what people could find. We'll cover the bicycle here and walk, Kyung Won whispered as we reached a standing tree. At the first hideaway, the men joked that I was a poor man's whore and refused us entry. Eventually, we found a narrow shack made of wooden planks and blankets cramped into a back alley. Kyung Won wrapped his arm around my shoulders. When a man tried to stop us, I touched Kung Wen's cheek the way I thought a lover might. I got drafted. This is our last night together, he said. The man let us in with a warning. Don't bring attention to yourselves. Thank you. Hi,
3: everyone. Thank you for having me. These chairs are really comfortable. Yeah. <laughs> um, I felt so at home that I forgot to bring my own copy up to the, <laughs> up to the stage. So um, um, I'm going to read from a store copy, which has no markings, um, but I will remain under five minutes. Um, it's really great to be here. I was actually born in Pennsylvania. I was born in Pittsburgh, but I don't remember very much of it um, and I'm really happy to, I feel as though I recognize places, <laughs> which is not, um, not possible because I've never been to Harrisburg but I'm like, I feel like I'm from here. Um, so glad to be talking about Portraits of Home. Um, I'm gonna read to you from a section of the novel that takes place in, um, well the entire novel takes place in modern Shanghai. So it's Shanghai in 2010 it's set in a luxury hotel, um, and it's what we were promised is a novel about a family called the Zhen family, and they are Chinese-American. The couple that the story kind of centers on, um, they were born in China, and they spent many years abroad in the U.S., making a family, making a home, and they have come back to China after many years to for work. And um, they find themselves living in this luxurious hotel with other expats and this hotel is staffed by people who are locally Chinese and who may not speak English. um, So there's a a little bit of a, a, well, there's a big culture barrier between them. So the chapter I'm going to read from is a chapter told from the point of view of one of the main characters, Sunny. She is a housekeeper in Lanson Suites, the luxury hotel. One day, you'll walk into a suite and find doors closed to you. The second bedroom, the study, the many closets. We had guests over, Tai Tai will say. We went ahead and tidied a little ourselves. But that won't explain the Jade missing from the display case or her designer shoes gone from the entryway. In the master bedroom, someone will have done your job badly. A bureau cleared, its contents stuffed out of sight, the bed made so that the sheets still hang loose from the mattress. Tai Tai will stay in the next room with the baby. She will not come out until after you've gone, but for once, she'll be listening to you, listening for the sound of your feet. With fewer rooms to clean, you'll finish up quick and wheel the cart back through the service entrance to the laundry hall. That's when you'll take out your phone and text your loved ones the news. You're about to be accused. When Sunny had heard this speech from Rose on her first day of work five years ago, she hadn't thought much of it. She'd assumed it was just an old housekeeper's attempt to scare her new partner, a way of saying, I know what's what and you know nothing. Sunny was expert at knowing nothing. Where she'd come from, she'd spent more than a year as a professional odd jobber, a forever apprentice hired out by her parents for gigs around her hometown. She'd fixed motors with a handyman and skinned vegetables for restaurant stews. She'd washed laundry and delivered cargo, Rubber tires and concrete slabs and dead chickens in need of plucking. On a bicycle, her load sometimes a few hundred weights more than her own weight. Few hundred pounds more than her own weight. In in every job, she had been trained by someone like Rose, a person too old to learn new skills and who craved recognition for the ones she already had. This kind of trainer expected Sunny to learn quickly and yet resented her for doing so. Sunny was tired of being a novice. She was determined to be great at something and cleaning homes was as good as anything else. Nah, it would be different here. Full-time job, no end date. Rose had led Sunny down the hall to the changing room listing the shortcomings of the hotel and service departments. The guests and residents were wealthy and therefore very particular. Management was unfriendly at best. They hired English speakers for the front desk and those employees looked down on the rest of the staff. Worst of all though, were the accusations of theft. They were easy to make and difficult to defend against. Any one of the maids could be replaced faster than you could fry up an egg for make wallow breakfast. There wasn't any shortage of migrant labor. Where's your hometown? Rose asked, opening a locker and retrieving her uniform from its shelf. Hefei, Sunny replied. The outskirts, she didn't say. Rose looked Sunny up and down, her expression making it clear that she understood exactly where she was from the distinction wasn't necessary. Another one from Anhui province. You'll find many friends in the city. As she spoke, Rose pulled on a khaki colored tunic, black cotton trousers and standard issue cloth shoes. She was in her 40s but looked older. Her hair was shot through with silver and the skin on her face was pocked as an orange rind. With practiced twists of her wrists, she rolled up the sleeves of her tunic and adjusted her collar so that it sat comfortably on her shoulders. Sunny had put on her own uniform before leaving the house that morning. But she had ridden from Hong Kong to Lujiazui on her motorbike and by the time she had arrived at the hotel, the entire back of her tunic was drenched in sweat. In the air-conditioned changing room of Lanson Suites, she felt the polyester's damp weight. Sweat had stiffened her bangs in s- into flat strokes across her forehead. Where are your stockings? Rose asked when she caught Sunny pressing a swollen heel against the metal lockers. Xiao Kunyang. She called her, even though Sonny was nearing 29, had not been, been a girl for some time. You're lucky to have been partnered with me. Some country girls learn quick. Others are back on the job market within a week. We'll see which kind you are. From inside her cubby, Rose pulled out a pair of nude-colored hose and handed them over. Each of the housekeeping supplies had its own place on the cart. The bottom shelf held cleaning fluids, toilet towels, and toilet paper, which Western residents used with incredible speed. The top shelf was filled with boxed soaps, tissues, pouches full of needles and coils of colored thread, plastic combs with with teeth too fine for thick Chinese hair like their own. With these, they stocked only the short-term hotel rooms. The permanent residents preferred toiletries imported from abroad. When the cart was ready and both women fully dressed, Rose reached into a cabinet and pulled out a plastic bin full of name name tags. Here, she said, pick one. Sunny couldn't read English, but did not want to ask Rose for help. This moment felt too private, too important. Years later, she would remember digging through the bin, not knowing what she was looking for, but knowing it was right the moment she found it. S-U-N-N-Y. There was something balanced and generous about the shape of that S. And she liked the way the double ends looked like the U turned upside down. The letters reminded her of a row of children playing leapfrog. She especially liked that the tag was still in its plastic wrapping. It meant that no other maid had used it before, that she would be the first S-U-N-N-Y to, sleep Lan- to sweep Lance and Sweets floors. That was something she had been looking forward to when she arrived in Shanghai, an identity all her own.
2: So we're gonna have a conversation just amongst ourselves since, uh, without a moderator since we are friends and, <laughs> and so I thought that maybe Lucy you could start by telling us about how you came to write this
3: novel. Yeah. Um, so what we were promised is set in Shanghai where I lived for two years after college. Um, I have always wanted to be a writer, and like many writers do after graduating college, you, you move back home with your parents. Um, so I was—I moved back, but instead of living in my parents' basement, I, I lived in one of these hotels right here. My parents are expats. They were living in China at the time, working for a, f- a foreign corporation. And so I lived in a setting very similar to the one in my book, and I was just fascinated by modern China, the way that it's changing so quickly, um, physically and you know, economically and everything in between culturally. So um, I think what was most striking to me about living in this hotel was the fact that it was all of these expats and they were serviced by people who actually lived in China. And um, I wanted to write a book about how people can occupy the same space mm-hmm. so many hours in a day and not really ever know one another. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's why this book is written from the points of view of three characters. And while a lot happens in the book, very very little gets said, very little um, passes, very little understanding passes between them. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's kind of one of the driving forces of the book. Yeah. Um, but I think of it as kind of like a love letter to Shanghai, because I wrote it when I was back home in the States and, and really missing it. And so, like, I guess that's how the book came to be. Yeah, so, no. What about you, Crystal? Um, I started, so af- I
2: always wanted to be a writer since I was really little, mm-hmm. but I think that being the daughter of immigrant parents I wanted to do something a little more stable, right? I wanted there to be a clear path. So for a while, I thought I was gonna be a lawyer. And oh uh, that too. didn't work out. Really? Oh yeah. <laughs> because you know, they work with writing and, and it can be really intellectual. But when I w- started, so I then put that aside. And then I did Teach for America for two years. And I love teaching, I still teach a lot but I gave myself this promise that after two years, if I still wanted to write, I would let myself go to graduate school for creative writing. I love that. Yeah, and I, d- I love teaching, but I still was really yearning to write. It was something that I knew I needed to do. So then I went to grad, grad school, and that's where I started writing about these characters. And my all four of my grandparents survived the Korean War And I'm particularly close with my maternal grandmother because she helped raise me when I was little, when my parents were first immigrants here and they had me, they weren't necessarily that prepared and they couldn't afford daycare. So my maternal grandmother actually flew from Korea and left her life for two years to take care of me, which is just like an enormous sacrifice. So we've been really close ever since She sends me selfies all the time now (laughs) from Korea. And she would tell me about being a teenage refugee who had to flee her home with her widowed mother during the Korean War. And the stories stayed with me. So when I then went to grad school, I pretty quickly decided I need to write about this period of time. And I think that part of it was Korea and Korea's history was a big part of my life at home. And then when I was at school, I grew up in Queens and Long Island in New York. When I was at school, no one knew anything about Korea. And there was this very strange contrast between how important it was in my home and then how people, w- you know, in in the public world of, of my world, you know, which is school, didn't know anything. Uh, I remember when I was... I think in first grade, I think, a boy said to me, what are you? And I said, I'm Korean. <laughs> and he said, no, very surely. He, was, he said, no, you have to be Chinese or Japanese. What are you? <laughs> <laughs> and it was so strange to me. I just didn't, we were having this conversation and neither of us understood each other and it was really confusing. So because of that, that distance or that tension between what I knew about Korea at home and then what the the maybe larger world knew about Korea that made me want to write about it even more yeah.
3: do you think that that experience sort of informed the way that you became a writer because mm-hmm. I, I, s- I have this theory because I have you know growing up chinese american have had similar experiences yeah. um, and I've thought of it as part of my upbringing in the way that it has forced me to empathize with other people's points of view maybe more and sooner than maybe um, a, a person who isn't from an immigrant family. Do you think that it has any connection to your writing in that way?
2: I think so. I think that... Yes, I think that it made me realize that the space that I was occupying emotionally or culturally is not necessarily the space that other people are occupying, and I think I learned that pretty early on, that we all have our own kind of contexts, and I thought that tension was really interesting, mm-hmm. and that's something that you I wanted to explore through writing. So I think in that way, it was definitely helpful as a writer. And then I think that I think writers are very emotionally porous, right? So the fact that I had that conversation just stayed with me and made me realize, okay, there are some people who will know something completely different from my own or have a completely different cultural history. So I think those moments just stayed with me perhaps longer than other people Mm. because it resonated with me emotionally,
3: yeah. I like that term, emotionally porous. Don't you think writers are very
2: emotionally porous? Yes.
3: (laughs) Yes. I think that sounds nicer
2: than too sensitive. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Do you wanna talk about maybe what home means to your characters? Since this is portraits of
3: home. Yeah, um, well, so home for my characters, I have three main characters as I said before in this story. There's Lena and Wei and they're expats. So they their first home was China and then they moved abroad to America because their parents told them that they would have a better future there. And in a way they are right because they're successful financially. They they feel um they, f- they feel secure um and they feel that they've, you know, sort of moved up the social ladder the more years that they spend in America. And then you know halfway through their lives they come back and they come back home and they see that Shanghai is radically changed and they don't connect with the people who live there in the way that they connect with the people who are identifying as internationals and so that's sort of what where the the space of this book is um, and I think home is a tricky concept for them for one character specifically, um, the one who isn't working, so her name is Lena, and she is in Chinese, what we call Tai Tai, um, and it's basically a housewife who doesn't do any housework. She just basically, she, she goes to lunch a lot, she you know goes shopping a lot. It's um, <laughs> outwardly very nice, but I think <laughs> as you will if you read this book, y- you will find that it's, that it's not that nice mm-hmm. for her, um, because she at one point was an immigrant who was tasked with the responsibility of assimilating to a completely new world, learning a completely different language. And so I think that who she is in those two different contexts, America and China, rattle her sense of identity. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think her relationship with home is complicated in that way because neither one really feels like home anymore. And so I think if I had to say that the the book had a thesis, um, I, I would say that these characters define home as the sets of relationship that they've ma- relationships that they've made with their family members, with their friends, and you know with with each other. So um, I think it's 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 definitely an exploration of I think what that term means. It's mm-hmm. very complicated. And then um, so then there's the other the character that I just read from the point of view of Sunny. She is coming from a more rural hometown in China, and she's coming to this big city where um, she has none of her family members with her, and she's deciding whether or not she wants to stay and to make a home for herself in this new city. So that's um, another subplot.
2: Yeah, she's trying to figure out what home means, right? Whether or not she should return to somewhere more rural or stay in Shanghai? Yeah.
3: Yeah. Yeah. But they, they have, you know, they have the choice, in a way, I think mm-hmm. that they're, and that's what the characters are grappling with: is have I made the right choice? Yeah. Um, and have I made this choice for me, or have I just made this for my parents, or have I made it for my country? And which, which is right? You know, which, what responsibilities do I hold? Um, what allegiances, allegiances do I hold? Mm. So, but your book is different in that these people are actually your characters are forced out of their homes. Yes.
2: Yeah, so the novel starts, uh, the part that I read is the beginning, but it starts with a year into the Korean War, when all of these characters, Hemi, Su and Kyungwon, they have been forced from their home, they fled to Busan, and that, that premise is, ri- uh, is rooted in my family history, and how my grandparents and also some of my aunts and uncles had to flee their home, and I think that th- my novel explores home in a different way because the characters continuas- continuously have to figure out what does home mean when it doesn't necessarily exist any longer, because even after the war, some of the characters will not be able to return home, will not be able to return to their families. And also, what does home mean in terms of nationhood? Because these characters were born into a korea that was whole when where the north and the south were united and after the war some of these characters and some of some Koreans right now really cling to this belief that their country is going to be reunited you know that this is just a brief period of time where the armistice is still going on they're going to be one country again so this idea of how do you grapple with what is home in terms of your country as well as your physical place with your family when you're living in a state of not knowing. And that has continued on for 68 years. I was actually in Korea in April when the North Korean leader Kim Jong-un and the South Korean president Moon Jae-in met during the inter-Korean summit. So I I went to the DMZ a couple a two day two or three days before they met because I wanted to see the DMZ for myself. That's something that I had not done because when I usually go to Korea, I see family and South Koreans actually it's much harder to go to the DMZ than than tourists. And then I watched this Inter-Korea summit meeting with my grandmother, and she was crying and she was saying, I never thought this was gonna happen. And she was s- clinging to this idea that because these two leaders have met, this is the first step towards reunification. And it was really interesting because I was also at the same time reading the American news and the American news was incredibly cynical and saying like, this is ridiculous. Like, you know, this n- nothing's gonna happen. And there was such a sense of hope in my grandmother and in a lot of people in her generation who want their country to be reunited. And it was just strange, again, this idea of, um, what do different countries, what do different people understand of even the same state of the world because America was so cynical about it. The American news, at least, versus the the Korean news was very hopeful and excited.
3: Yeah. It's really interesting how, as you say, how different one event can be perceived by these two different nations. I relate completely, Um, so there's, the book is set in 2010 but it also flashes back to the 1980s and further back as well um, during the Cultural Revolution and I think one of the reasons I wanted to write about this book is because I I had grown up hearing about the Cultural Revolution from an American standpoint Mm. and then as I grew older and I I had more conversations with my grandparents I started to understand it from their standpoint and I really wanted to write the book from their standpoint because I think oftentimes the way that we learn about it is like Something communism happened, and then suddenly people were starving, and then yeah. you know, then the Cultural Revolution happened, and then it was over. Yeah. Um, but there's there, you know, there's a reason people were behind that movement and that effort, and um, so I think um, I also had that moment of like, oh wow, this is this is a totally different perspective that I hadn't been exposed to as I was learning those facts. Yeah. Do you think that you have? I guess I'm curious about your relationship to Korea mm-hmm. and whether that has changed over time, whether that um, time being before or after you've written the book or just you know growing up.
2: I think that you know I was really excited for this panel because I think that this idea of portraits of home can apply both to our characters and then ourselves mm-hmm. uh, as a Korean American. I'm always thinking about what does home mean because my parents are incredibly culturally and traditionally Korean and my first language was Korean. We celebrate all of these Korean holidays but and yet I'm obviously deeply American as well and so I'm always I think not grappling with I think when I was younger I thought that I had to be either or right. So there was a period of time when I rejected Korean culture and I wanted to eat like pasta for dinner and you know not eat Korean food for every, every meal. Um, and then as I've grown older, I've realized that be just because you're a hyphenated identity doesn't mean you have to be either or, you can be both. And especially since, my, so my dad is one of nine children and they wow. all live, I know. <laughs> My poor grandmother. <laughs> <laughs> you poor, seriously. <laughs> <laughs> and they all d- we all live in the tri-state area, New York, New Jersey, Connecticut. And so I grew up with around a lot of Korean people. And then at the same time, my mom is one of five, uh, five daughters, and they're all in Korea. So we would go back often, almost every summer. So I think that I was lucky in that I was able to stay really close to my Korean roots while still being I, I'm an American here and now I'm trying to make sure that I balance those and that I know for myself you know it's easy to say th- to myself you know you can do you can be both but sometimes in reality it's harder so I'm always I think I'm always thinking about that and I think that's also a reason why I like to write about Korea and in order to kind of k- maintain ties with my Korean culture and my Korean history and writing this book made me feel even closer because I had to do so much research for mm. it. What about you? How do you see your identity and home?
3: Well, it's funny that you were, sa- I think something that, came a memory that came back to me when you were talking yeah. is the first moment that I had to, to choose, that I can remember. Um, of course, you're choosing every day in little ways. The way yeah. that I, the ways that I spoke to my friends and the ways that I followed rules outside the home was not the same way as within the home. and. I think as a young kid, you, you sort of just pick up on what the different rules are and you code switch. Yeah. Um, but the first time that I remember distinctly having to choose was when it was the, the Summer Olympics one year and it was you know, U.S. versus China. And I was like, <laughs> oh no, which do I root for? And it was this source of extreme anxiety because <laughs> I was watching with my family. If, if my family hadn't been there, if I had been with my friends, of course it would be the U.S. But when I was watching it with my family, then I felt... Because if you asked me, I would say I'm American, right? Because I wanted to be like everybody else. And everybody else was that I knew was American. Yeah. Um, but I really didn't want to root for America in that moment. And I had those moments, too, where I was like, Mom, I want pizza. Yeah. I don't even like pizza that much. <laughs> I don't even like pizza. I don't like... Yeah, people... Yeah, I'm, I know I'm weird, but um, no, for also a while... I don't like
2: pizza that much either, and I feel terrible saying it. Everybody loves pizza so much, <laughs> especially New York.
3: Yeah, pizza. especially right. You can't get away. Wi- we're we're both coming here from. W- she's from New York. I spent many years in New York. Um, yeah, pizza is a big thing. But um, after a while, I just admitted to myself one day, I love Chinese food. I want to eat Chinese <laughs> food every meal, which is a problem now because I don't know how to cook, and my mom isn't around anymore. But um, <laughs> yeah, I I I I think that became easier for me to accept this blended nationality, I think when I went to college. Mm. Um, and I think because in college there were more international students, and, um, and so I, I think that sort of just subconsciously <laughs> made it a seem a little less weird to me. And, um, but I always feel much more American when I'm in China, and I feel much more Chinese when I'm in America. So I don't uh, think yeah. that will ever change because we always, you know, picking up on what's different, how we're different than other people and I definitely feel very American in China.
2: I feel that way too even though I speak Korean, but just the way I, I dress or yep. y- you know, in Korea they're really the m- the makeup is very pale skin and the fact that I have freckles is just horrifying when I was little and I would go, you know, places with my grandmother, people w- on the street would say <gasps> what are we gonna do
3: about your freckles? (laughs) We need (laughs) to do something.
2: So yeah, there's this, um, I always feel more American
3: there than here. Yeah, yeah. Mm. makeup is definitely a thing people can spot right away, I think. I've also told the way that we walk is different. Have you ever been told that? No. Apparently there's an American way of walking. Uh. (laughs) Maybe Maybe you take up more room or something like that. Yeah, Um, more confident. Yeah,
2: (laughs) so. I think we should, um, turn it over for questions, right? Yeah,
0: absolutely. Yes. Um, if you have any questions, and we're gonna start with Chad Fry, and then we're gonna go
4: around the room. Well, thank you both for your great stories. Um, I grew up in Lancaster County, which mm-hmm. is just 45 minutes down the way, home of the Amish, mm-hmm. um, so very different uh, place. Yeah. But I'm really interested, you started to touch on this, but for you or your characters, How important is the geography of place in this conversation about home? I heard you talk about home being uh, this set of relationships that we have with each other, close, safe, deep relationships. Um, And that's, I think I resonate with that, but it seems a little abstract Mm -hmm. because we don't live in that abstraction, we actually live in physical spaces. Mm -hmm. And that relationship between a concrete physical place and our identity seems to be really interesting. And I was just wondering if you could comment a little bit more for you or for any of your characters about that relationship. Yeah.
3: So I'll give a very specific example. There is, so the character Sunny, um, she has a routine when she wa- when she goes throughout her day. She's working most hours, but she has this 15 minute time span in the very beginning of her day where she wakes up and she makes herself her tea and she gets on WeChat, which is the Chinese, what's the equivalent?
2: Like group chat?
3: Um, it's an app, it's like a cow. Oh,
2: cacao. But that's the
3: C- C- Korean equivalent. Yeah. It's a messaging system. Um, <laughs> and, um, and so she is in a group chat with her mother and her sister and they're just, they're just talking and she's drinking her tea and she's, and she's home. And I think that the way she feels about that time and the minutes before she goes to bed where she gets to re-engage with those people, um, that's what she's holding on to the rest of Shanghai is a little bit like a battleground for her um, at least wh- when this book opens that 's the case I'm not sure if that makes it a little less abstract um, but for me it's you know it's we we build communities online now. sometimes those are the people that we feel closest to, whether it's we have a spe- specific interest um, in European board games <laughs> and you find your group there, or I don't know, I, I think that oftentimes it's, y- we, we find communities for pe- with people who have our similar beliefs or similar yeah. experiences and, um, and that can sometimes feel stronger than um, the place where we actually live, especially yeah. if it's changing as quickly as a city like Shanghai is changing.
2: Yeah, I think for my five characters so physically, they are in Busan, which is the southeasternmost city in Korea, and is the only city during the Korean War that was not at one point taken over by the communist side. And afterwards, I have five characters, so th- I wanted there to be complex layers of these characters figuring out what home meant, especially since Hemi, the, the female character, is from a s- rural province, as is Kyungwan. And then Chi who is Kyung Wan's older, wealthier cousin, is from Seoul. So there's constantly this question of not only what does home mean in terms of Korea, the nation, but also what does home mean when you are from the city versus a more rural province, especially in the years after the war. The novel spans 16 years. And in the years after the war, in Korea, there was a huge influx of people moving to Seoul and moving to cities, but I have, the, I, have s- so I have one main character who goes that route, and then I have other characters who remain in the countryside. So physically, in terms of place, they're always grappling with, have I made the right decision in terms of where I'm calling home, w- even within South Korea, within Korea. Does that help answer? Yeah. We
0: have a Thank question you. in the third row.
4: Mm-hmm. Oh, hi. Um, you mentioned the change twice, like uh, how Shanghai or China in general has been changed recently. I was wondering if you can elaborate a little bit more about it. Like, what happened in China? Did you guys have another Trump what over there, or what?
3: Um, regulation changes, policy changes. Um, the sh- the short version of the explanation, the one that I can manage, is is just that it has decided to open up a little bit more economically and to trade more um, and allow more bi- more foreign businesses to come into China and to um, establish a foundation there. Mm-hmm. I think that might be the best way to explain it. Um, Is it positive I think or negative? many, I, I think it's positive. I think it's positive um, because I think it shows, well, it mm-hmm. shows that <laughs> it's moving away from a strictly communist m- mentality. It, it's, it's allowing a little bit more <laughs> capitalistic influences within it, but I, I don't know. I'm not entirely sure. I think that there is a lot of conflicting viewpoints as well, and I don't think I know enough about economics yeah. and policy to really give an opinion, and I feel like I should convince you that I'm right, so (laughs) (laughs) I'm sorry. We've got a (laughs) question in
0: the
4: back. Yeah. Thank you for your presentations. Thank you. I worked in Seoul in community relations a long time ago, and today, every day, I'm on QQ and WeChat for three to four hours with Chinese students. Mm. Can you tell me what role the Confucian ethic has had in your personal lives and in your character's lives?
2: Did you say epic? Ethic? Ethics, ethics,
3: I think. Okay. Um, I think so I'm assuming when you say Confucian ethics, you're talking more about this idea of the good filial son and daughter and um, relationships, yes. I think that the time span of my book is sort of my main characters, Lena and Wei, grow up during a time where that 's very much the case, um, and they listen to their parents because it 's their parents know best, but the world is changing so quickly that by the time they get to America and they reach that you know accomplish what is known as the American dream they realize that that might not be enough for them, and that maybe the country that holds the most promise is actually back in China, both in terms of uh, their careers and in terms of what it means to feel as though their lives have been a little bit more fulfilled. I think they're, they're missing that, um, that piece of their identity, and, and I think part of why they're going back is in search of it, um, which, is not part of the uh, Confucian ideal in that it's about selfhood. And I think all three of my characters are in this time in their life where they're battling. Do I listen to the older generation and just be a good son or daughter and fit into the society that loves me and wants what, they, what it thinks is the best for me? Or do I really think about what I want and um, see if there's a place in this new world for me to build an identity that isn't necessarily acceptable um, by the old values.
0: Mm. We have a question in the fourth row.
5: Thank you so much for your readings and your comments. I'm a faculty member in the English department at Dickinson, and just want to say that I'm so excited and looking forward to teaching your work in my oh, classes. Thank you. Um, thank you. And we also have a very uh, enthusiastic group of Dickinson students in the front who are members of the Creative Writing Society at Dickinson. So it's a real treat oh, um, for us, especially to get to hear you. Um, my question is: I was wondering, you know, you've made it clear that for both of you, these novels carry a lot of weight—personal, cultural, mm-hmm. geographic, national. Could you talk a little bit about the creative process, the aesthetic choices, um, yeah. the challenges as writers, navigating material and navigating narratives that, that are being asked to carry so many different kinds of weights? Yeah. Thank you.
2: Thank you, that's a great question. I think, so when I first started in the, in the master's program, I, I was so intimidated by this act of writing that I didn't think I could write a novel yet. I thought that I needed to learn more skills. So I actually started writing an interconnected short story collection that spanned three generations. And these characters were just the first generation, and then then it was about their daughters, and then it was about their daughters' kids, which would be my generation. And it was actually not until three years later in my last semester that my teacher read one of the chapter, one of the short stories and said, this needs to be a novel. Mm. Set aside the second and third generation, make the first generation a novel. And at the time I thought, what the heck? Mm. I just spent three years <laughs> working on the short story collection. Are we ever going to see it? I the don't know. Okay. But I, I'd spent so long, three years, but At this, also, I also somehow at that point, you know, it'd been three years into my graduate studies, I realized he was right and that I could do it. I had the confidence. So I actually changed the first first, um, part of the three generations and kind of deepened it into this current novel. And I, in terms of the writing process, I wanted this novel to be about a young woman's experience during the war, right? Because I don't think that women's voices, especially in war narratives, are given enough attention. But I also wanted this novel to feel epic in scope. So I ended up adding these two men, these two men, Kyungwan and Chisu, because they're from very different backgrounds, socioeconomically and from different f- geographic backgrounds. And I knew that I wanted to give their perspective on the war. And then I added Hyungi, the Hemi, the girl's brother, because I wanted someone younger. And then I added her daughter, because I wanted to show the ways in which trauma can be passed down through generations or what that effect has. So it was a slow process, a slow writing process, where the more I wrote, the more I realized, okay, I wanna add a little bit of this in, I wanna add a little bit of this. So I'm not the type of writer that knows exactly what the structure is going to look like from the beginning. I'm really cu- playing around with form until, until somehow it gets clearer over time. What about you?
3: Yeah, I would agree with that. I, I think the important thing to remember is that you don't have to do everything all at once. Yes. A book is so many drafts. And mm-hmm. I'm like you. I, you know, I was terrified of writing a novel. Yeah. Um, I wrote a short story. It was the first three chapters of the novel told from Sunny's perspective, and my professor said, you know, this reads like a novel, and I was so happy to hear her say that. I was like, yeah, I <laughs> I, 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 feel that, you know, I, I think I want to follow these characters further. One day I'll turn it into a novel. And she said, what are you doing right now? <laughs> You're in grad school, why are you not writing it now? And I was, yeah, okay, I <laughs> uh, can try that. Um, so that's how, I think, you know, I also needed kind of a kick in the butt to, to to tell me to, to write a novel, yeah. and in a very early draft, I really did not, I don't like research, and I did not want it to be about the Cultural Revolution. Um, and and I, I planned it so that my characters were born just you know so that they could have just missed the Cultural <laughs> Revolution. <laughs> and as I wrote into it, I realized there's no way to write about China without writing about the Cultural Revolution. And so I had, to, I had to go deeper. And I think that's kind of what it feels like, you just go deeper and deeper and deeper. But it's a few feet al- at a time. Mm-hmm. And years later, you're like, whoa, that, that was a lot of work. <laughs> um, but you know, it's, it's you have help along the way and, and um, you get there eventually.
2: Yeah, community is really important, I think. Yes,
3: very important.
0: Sadly, we are running out of time, but we have time for just one more question. Who's it gonna be? <laughs> <laughs> yes, Yasmin. <laughs>
2: um, what advice do you have for young writers? Mm. Do you want to start?
3: The one that I, I always say is to travel a lot and to take good notes. Mm. And what I would have told myself, because I was taking notes, I was journaling, I wasn't taking the right notes. I was, there was a lot of how I, how I was feeling and how I, bu- but I wasn't even writing that. I was m- writing what I thought I should be feeling. Um, I don't think I was very honest with myself in my journaling. So I think <laughs> that um, you, should, you should feel that, you know, the stories that you have to tell now are worth telling and you should be confident enough to tell them um, and make your mind as broad as possible. Read a lot, travel a lot, so internal or external traveling and write down what you see because all of that is useful material. I would say read a lot and also
2: believe in your project because find a project that you believe in, right? Because the writing process is very long, years long, it's lonely and you don't necessarily know what the final project, final product is gonna look like, but you can believe in the, the premise and the project that you're working on from the beginning, even if you don't know what, how it'll end, and that will keep you going. Because, yeah, it's a long, solitary process, yeah. but it's worth it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I hope that was uh, hopeful. Uh-huh.
3: but this is a perfect i mean events like this this is community you yeah. know this is coming to your local bookstore and sitting next to people who are also lo- be lonely together yes be lonely is together. a good way to go yeah
0: can we give a huge round of applause for crystal and lucy
2: <laughs> thank you so much thanks for coming yeah thank you for coming